Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Uh, this is a, a chaotic scene. There's a lot going on in this, uh, in this brief few verses, but I want you to listen for words like immediately and at once and uh, the word seized over and over again, and that gives you a sense of, of what's happening in the darkness of this night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to read verses 43 through 52. And immediately, while he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the Scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word, for the, the light it shines into dark places, uh, dark places like Gethsemane, uh, dark places like, uh, like COVID, uh, dark places like uh, our hearts. Uh, and Lord, thank you for the light, uh, the light that gives hope, the light that uh, gives us righteousness, the, right, the light that gives us uh, victory through Jesus, who is our honor and our dignity. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> uh, there's a, a lot, as I said, going on here, so I'm going to try to break it down and, and uh, simplify it in, in along these terms. So uh, there's a few different actors or, or individuals here, and so you've got a betrayer, uh, you've got an attacker or fighter, uh, you've got a, uh, a runner, you know, and then you've got a robber, and, and we're going to talk about those four individuals here. But let's start with, with the betrayer, with Judas, and we all know about Judas, but uh, let me, before we sort of dive into that, tell you about me a little bit, uh, and I don't know if you're new watching at home or if you're a guest here, my name is Essen, and uh, Essen is a word that if, you're, if you've ever took German, you, you know Essen means to eat, which is an interesting name uh, to, to introduce myself to people and go, yeah, my name is to eat. Uh, but that's not where my, my dad got the name Essen from, uh, the, the legend, <laughs> I don't know. The story is that he took... Uh, that's the, the infinitive, I think. 
Uh, and it's where we get the English words essence and essential, right? So, so that's, that's, that's kind of where my name comes from. My dad, he's a smart guy. He's a college professor. So, you know, the Latin thing, I think that's kind of cool. But uh, I didn't think it was so cool growing up. I had a weird name, uh, and, and I kind of was like a little bit embarrassed by it. Uh, but now I think it's cool, because now I can introduce myself just with my first name. I don't need to battle with last names. I'm in a, a, you know, an elite group of people who just are known for their, their one name, one name crowd, you know, like Chewbacca <laughs> and Cher. Um, and so anyway, Essen. I've never met another Essen. Nobody else I know, you know has had parents name their child Essen. Uh, you've probably never met another Essen. If you have, let me know. I'd like to meet my, my doppelganger. Uh, you've probably also never met a Judas. You've probably also never met uh, an Adolf. If you have, that's weird, right? Like, who names their kid Adolf? Who would name their kid Judas? Why would anybody name their kid Judas? Judas... Everybody knows he's this betrayer, right? Um, it's, it's awful uh, he, what he's done. Jesus has just finished praying and asking his father if there's any way possible for the world to know blessing, for evil and the curse to be defeated apart from him draining that cup. Is there any way possible? And of course there's not. And he submits himself to the Father's will. He knows that this is the plan that he has to pursue in order to rid the world of evil, in order to save his people. And he, and he gets up from his prayer, and every, all the disciples have kind of fallen asleep on the job, literally, and he sees his betrayer coming. See, my betrayer is at hand. And he knows what Judas has done. He knows that he's sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. And Judas, nonetheless, is still maintaining the charade. He should have known by now. He should have learned by now that you can't fool Jesus. You're not going to trick him. You're not going to pull one over on him as if you know something he doesn't already. Nonetheless, Judas, you know, marches forward with the mob and comes up to Jesus and, you know, with this honorific title, Rabbi, and this deferential show of respect, you know, to, to kiss him. And that's the signal uh, to, to the, the, the crowd, the mob with the swords and the clubs. It's dark. They, you know, don't really, maybe they, maybe they haven't really laid eyes on Jesus before. It seems, you know, dubious though. He's been in the temple teaching, but it's dark and it's chaotic. And, you know, maybe it's one of the disciples. So, so Judas makes sure they know exactly who to seize, who to arrest. And, he, and he, he makes sure not through being plain spoken, there's Jesus, arrest him. No, he, he comes up and he pretends to still honor him. Um, and, and so it's this Judas kiss. We, we still have that expression uh, here 2,000 years later. Judas is, is a betrayer and, and nobody names their kid Judas. Nobody likes Judas. He's, he's intentionally sinning. He's intentionally betraying Jesus. Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way. Judas has found the perfect place in the dark, outside the city, away from the crowds, right? Like he's 
deliberately, premeditatedly doing this act of betrayal, setting the scene, waiting for the right moment. Um, you know, the quote continues, the swords and clubs are, are really unnecessary. They imply that Jesus is the kind of, of revolutionary leader that he has steadfastly refused to be. Despite what many had hoped, indeed, Judas himself may have wanted that kind of Messiah. And so just the irony increases at every step. You know, that might be exactly why Judas has turned on Jesus. He feels like G Jesus has failed him or, you know, tricked him. And, you know, yeah, we're going to do this kingdom thing, but, oh, it's not the kind of kingdom that you expect him. And so Judas is, you know, there's been a lot of conjecture about his motives. But what we know for sure is that this was premeditated. He's guilty of betraying Jesus. Guilty people deserve condemnation. And his guilt's evident. His betrayer is at hand. But Judas wasn't just a betrayer. John 12 tells us more about Judas. Um, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray Jesus, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So this is the episode where Mary breaks the, the neck of this alabaster jar of really expensive perfume worth about a year's wages and anoints Jesus with them. And, and Judas is pretending to be upset, right? Like, oh my goodness, why is she doing this and wasting what could be given to the poor? Well, John tells us that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You know, this is the last we hear about Judas in Mark's gospel. You know, that he leads this mob to Gethsemane and betrays Jesus with a kiss and a title of, of honor and respect, rabbi. But from what we know about Judas and other gospels, uh, we, we understand what happened to him after this episode. You know, he becomes you know, conscious of his sin, aware of his guilt, aware of his, of his condemnation. And uh, he, he takes the 30 pieces of silver, throws them back into the temple, uh, and he ends up despairing of, of any kind of, of hope or, or, or forgiveness. Uh, he kills himself. Judas commits suicide because he's so aware of his guilt. I mean, and it's just compounded, right? I mean, it's, he's betraying Jesus. He's stealing. Like, not just, oh, I, I need some, some help, you know, to pay the rent or whatever. Not just stealing from the rich to give to the poor, kind of a Robin Hood. No, he's stealing from, like, a charity. He's stealing from, like, a church. And all of this sort of compounds on his conscience to where he just despairs of ever being forgiven, which is part of the irony. He's betraying the one who could forgive him. Instead of asking forgiveness, he just doubles down with this hard-hearted perspective of there's no hope. And Jesus has failed me, and, and, you know, life is not worth living anymore. That kind of guilt. That, that kind of hopelessness. And that's the betrayer. 
there's another person here, the fighter, uh, the attacker we see in verse 46. They lay hands on Jesus and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, presumably aiming for the neck. He missed. Oh, there goes an ear. Um, kind of an interesting anecdote. A Van Gogh kind of story. I don't know. But we learn more about this episode in the other Gospels. Matthew 26 tells us the same, tells us about the same scene, adds another detail how Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Mark is known for being uh, concise with his words. He's clipping along, he's moving fast. You know, words like immediately. Uh, are all scattered throughout Mark's gospel, and so he's just getting to the point. But other gospels are a little, a little more wordy and giving us more details. So we hear this response by Jesus, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. And sort of like Judas kissed, that's another expression that still lives on today. You know, live by the pen, die by the pen. You know, live by, you know, you fill in the blank, die by it. So those who live by the sword are going to perish by the sword. Those who draw it are going to perish by it. Luke gives us more info. You know, one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cut off his right ear. We learn that it's the right ear. And Jesus said, no more of this. And then Jesus touched his ear and healed him. So Jesus has the presence of mind. Luke reminds us that, 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 that he's going he's to heal one of the men sent to arrest him, to seize him. That's how in the moment Jesus is. That's how full of grace Jesus is. Restores the right ear of one who is seizing him. And then we learn more from John. We learn that, that it's Simon Peter. It's Peter who's the fighter. And that doesn't surprise us, right? It's, Peter's impetuous and, you know, you know, act first, think later, you know, uh, shoot first, aim later. Uh, and, and so we're not surprised at all that it's Peter pulling the sword and drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. And, the, and we also learn that the servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Again, Peter, stop impeding the, the will of the Father um, and being a stumbling block, right? We heard Jesus say that to Peter before. So, you know, you can learn a lot about a person by watching how they respond under pressure. What, what happens when, you know, the, the pressure's applied, when the heat's turned up, uh, when there's all kinds of duress? What, what actions does a person take? What words come out of that person's mouth? You know, what's their default? Uh, and, and so what we see here is Peter, uh, his default is to fight. His default is to, to defend Jesus. We can actually commend him for that, right? That's not a bad thing. But, you know, <laughs> how did he do in his defense? Like, all he can manage to do is, is sort of lop off a, a guard's ear, and there goes Jesus taken away, and it's a complete failure in terms of, like, protecting Jesus. Peter's a failure. In fact, the whole, the whole kingdom thing is a failure. There goes their king. There goes their Messiah who they put their hope in. There goes their, their hope for victory. And it's all coming to this crashing, awful end in Gethsemane. 
and you know all of their thoughts about what Jesus was trying to accomplish, they're just, they just continue to demonstrate their ignorance about Jesus' intentions, and that's just one more failure. In their mind, the kingdom has failed, but, but truly, they have failed to understand the kingdom. And Peter's this great example of a failure. Judas is a great example of somebody who's guilty. Peter's a great example of somebody who's just miserably failed and made a mess of things. You know, Peter just got done saying, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter had kind of put all his chips in. And he was betting his whole life on the mission of Jesus. And, and here it is, just uh, an, an utter ruin. So you've got a betrayer, you've got a fighter, and there's a runner. And we see in verse 50, and, and then a couple, right at the end of this passage, just kind of bizarre anecdote, but they all left Jesus and fled, you know, like when you turn the lights on and the cockroaches scatter. They all fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Like Mark of... Of all the, 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 the four Gospels, Mark, the, the most concise, Mark, the most brief, what? this is the only Gospel that gives us this, this anecdote, this, this episode of a guy running away naked. There's actually a fairly reliable um, theory among the biblical scholars, I'm not taking this to the bank, but there's, there's a reliable assumption that this is autobiographical. This is Mark. running away naked and ashamed. Jesus had said, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Amos gives us a little more insight. The prophet Amos says in chapter 2 that he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, this day of the Lord, this day of reckoning and judgment and you know, the, the word that's used in verse 52, this young man, that's, that's synonymous with somebody who's strong in their prime, you know, stout-hearted, you know, presumably full of courage and so on, running away, fleeing away naked in that day. And there's all of these prophecies that are coming to bear, whether it's Zechariah and, you know, strike the shepherd and the sheep are going to scatter, or Amos, the strong are going to flee away naked in their shame. Uh, all of these Old Testament prophecies just pile on in, this, in these hours, these concentrated hours you know, that started in Gethsemane. Uh, another commentator said, like Adam and Eve, the disciples are metaphorically, and in this case literally, hiding their naked shame in the garden. And their disgrace is complete. Right? We talked about this. The parallels between the Garden of Gethsemane and the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you've got Adam and Eve wrestling with God's will. In the end, they choose, they choose, they want the tree that's going to bring the curse. And they say, not your will, God, but my will. And here you've got another garden, Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus wants anything but the tree, the cross that's going to bring the curse on him. But not, not my will, but yours be done. Adam and Eve, after taking from that tree that brought curse and ruin and death on, on the world, uh, they're ashamed. 
and they try to hide. They hide from the Lord. They try to cover their nakedness. They don't want to feel vulnerable. They just feel the eyes that, that reject them. And that's what shame feels like. And that's what this man felt like. So we've met the betrayer who's guilty. And we met the attacker who's just failed again and again. We meet the runner who's ashamed, just trying to hide and get away from the stares of people who are better than him. There's one more person here, the robber. And in verse 48, Jesus says to them, and this is one of those eye roll moments of Jesus. Have you ever seen Jesus roll his eyes? He's doing it here. Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Really? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Um, do, you, do you all know the difference between a robber and a thief? They both steal. They both take what doesn't belong to them. A robber will steal by violence. A robber will take what doesn't belong to him or her through injuring you. A thief will do it sort of secretly, doesn't want you to know, they're, they're trying to, you know, not going to hurt you, but they're going to take your stuff. But a robber piles on not only theft, but violence. And so this mob comes with swords and clubs, expecting resistance, expecting um, a rebellion. In fact, the word robber here, some translations like the NIV, use uh, the English word for a revolutionary or an uh, insurrectionist, something like that, because there is some overlap here. And I guess in a way you can say that Jesus was a revolutionary. He was bringing a, certainly a different kingdom, but not by violence, not with swords and clubs. So this, uh, you know, seems to offend Jesus. He's rolling his eyes. He's, really? You know, come on. I was with you all the time, and you had all kinds of opportunities to take me. Uh, Michael Card, in his book, A Violent Grace, writes that with one direct question, he points out their deceit and cowardice. And with one pointed remark, he informs them that they have the power to arrest him now only because the Father wills it. And to treat him like a common thief now is a shameful act. He is anything but a robber. And yet, that's how he dies. Luke 22, you know, talks about uh, how the scriptures are going to be fulfilled. Well, one of those is Matthew 27. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Isaiah 53 says he was numbered with the transgressors, right? That's one of the scriptures that Jesus knew was being fulfilled. Zechariah, Amos, Isaiah, he's crucified between two robbers, two violent men who take what does not belong to them. Jesus went so far earlier in, John, in, in, in John's gospel, chapter 10, he says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy the thief and the robber, Right? But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 
So Jesus is here to bless us, not steal from us, not hurt us, not harm us and deprive us or curse us. He's here to bless us, to give us grace. But well, let's do a little thought experiment. Is there ever a time uh, when stealing is a blessing? Are there ever occasions when taking something that belongs to someone else, taking it from them, is there ever a time when that is, is a good thing, when that helps them? Uh, all right, so bad example, but you've maybe seen the ad for 1-800-GET-JUNK, right? You call 1-800-GET-JUNK, and the, the truck comes, and, it, and you point to the pile, and, and then it's gone. And you know, they take away your junk. And, and, if, and the, the woman in the, in the commercial is just giddy, like disturbingly giddy, uh, about them taking her junk. And all you have to do is call them up. And they will take what belongs to you and take it away. And that blesses you. Uh, or a more sobering example, uh, our brother Joel shows up at a hospital and they go into a surgical unit and the surgeon takes what belongs to Joel. It takes his tumor out of his body to bless him. So yeah, maybe, maybe there are some times when somebody taking what belongs to you, what belongs to me, bless us. We've talked about this before, but so forgive me if I'm being redundant, but if you're new, like, what's the only thing that really truly belongs to you and me? Like, that we didn't get from our Father, the Father of the Heavenly Lights, you know, who, who blesses us with every good and gracious gift. What's the only thing that truly, intrinsically belongs to, to you and to me. It's our sin. Jesus, the good shepherd, in a sense, becomes the good thief. And he takes what belongs to us away from us and makes it his own in order to bless us. So what if Jesus were to, to steal, to take from us what belongs to us, what doesn't belong to him, to make it his own? What if, have you ever had your identity stolen? You ever had somebody you know, take your credit card or, or your social security number? Good grief, that is a terrible ordeal. But what if, what if Jesus would steal our identity as someone who's guilty? What if he would steal our identity as a failure? What if he would steal our identity as somebody who is so ashamed to be seen by others? Like, can you identify with Judas? Can you identify with Peter? Can you identify with you know, maybe Mark? What about Judas? Like, all right, you're here. You're in church. Good for you. Or you're watching. Good for you. 
But are you doing this because you just have this unmitigated sense that I can't get over what I did? You know, whenever it was, I don't know if it was in the distant past or it was in the recent past, but you did something premeditated, something calculated and intentional. You knew exactly what you were doing and you knew it was evil and sinful and deserving of condemnation. And no matter how much you wash your hands, there's still blood on your hands. No matter how many times you come to church, there's still blood on your hands. No matter how many times you pray, no matter how many times you tune in, no matter how many things you do for for God, you cannot get over the sense that, well, there's now therefore no condemnation for everybody else, but not for me. And you feel the weight of your sin, you feel the condemnation, and you are just wondering, am I better off dead? What if Jesus stole your identity? The good thief, take your identity as a guilty sinner and make it his own. And take your guilt to the cross, atone for it, wipe it out, pay for it entirely, and then rise to new life, be resurrected, you raise with him in full forgiveness, complete justification, a new creation, and that's your new identity, right? The good thief who takes away our guilt and who takes away our failures. The good thief stealing our sense of just, I have invested everything, all of my energy, all of my resources into my family or my marriage or my kids or my work or my retirement or whatever, and it's all come crashing down. And I'm a failure. And Jesus comes along and says, no, I'll take that, please. Thank you very much. And Jesus had that sign hung above him on the cross, you know, remember, King of the Jews, translated in three different languages so everybody would know. Here's your failed king. Everybody's mocking him, making fun of him. He saved others. Can't even save himself. Failure. Loser. Are you there? Everything you've done, everything you've tried just keeps on crashing and burning and Jesus is stealing your identity. And because he rose from the dead, you and I who are united to him share in his victory. His victory. His kingdom. You are overcomers because of him. He gives us a new identity, steals from us our sense of feeling failures, and gives to us free as a gift victory, his conquest, and it's yours. Take it. And he takes our shame, steals our shame, steals that identity of, of, of feeling naked and exposed where 
I don't know what what it is that brought you to that place where you just feel everybody's rejection, everybody's um, condemnation and criticism. I don't know if that's how you grew up. I don't know if that's what's going on with you and your you know current situation, but you just feel naked all the time, eyes staring at you, searching you out, knowing your secrets, and you just want to hide. And Jesus takes that shame on himself. He hung naked on a cross for you, for me, to take away our shame and to, and to be given the same honor and dignity because we're united to him that he received in his resurrection and his ascension of the right hand of the Father. We're at the throne right now. Every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth is going to you know, bow the knee and confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and we share in that honor and that dignity. That's his gift to us. Because he stole our identity as shameful people and exchanged it for something good. Um, have you ever had a porch pirate take your Amazon order? And now you've got that doorbell, right, that's got the video camera, so you can, you're on to them. Um, well, uh, it's not, not porch pirating, but uh, the, our neighbor up the street, the past couple of days, they've had this rusty old wheelbarrow sitting out by the mailbox where the trash normally goes. And I've wondered, is that trash? I don't know, I think it's trash. And I, I, my wheelbarrow is broken. The wheel fell off. Literally, the wheels fell off my wheelbarrow. Um, and, and so I've been looking for a replacement wheelbarrow. I'm thinking, I want that wheelbarrow. I'm gonna, and I've been waiting for the car to show up in the driveway to ask them. No car for the past two days. And when you know it, this morning, the wheelbarrow is gone. Somebody else stole their wheelbarrow. <laughs> I didn't have the chance to steal it. I don't know, is trash, when does it become, you know, free to take? There's a, and then this morning I'm walking the dogs and there's a lawnmower out. Another neighbor has this, you know, old beat up lawnmower out in front of their mailbox. And I'm presumably it's for the trash pickup tomorrow. I don't know, but, you know, like, would it bless them to take that? What if, what if I took the old rusty wheelbarrow and replaced it with a brand new wheelbarrow? What if I took the old beat up, lawnmower doesn't, presumably doesn't work anymore and replaced it with a new John Deere. How would they feel? Um, when I was in sixth grade, I was so self-conscious about my name being different, being Essen. I changed it to Jeff. People from sixth grade to the middle of 11th grade knew me as Jeff. Not not G-E-O-F-F, like exotic Jeff, just plain old Jeff. <laughs> just the most ordinary, non, you know, weird Jeff I could come up with. And then in 11th grade, I switched schools, transferred to Princess Anne High School. And, uh, and by that point, I was kind of, you know, savvy enough to know that uh, Jeff isn't impressing anybody, but chicks might dig Essen, you know, uh, and something different. And, uh, and Ka Kathy dug it. Um, so, yeah, Jesus steals from us our shame, our guilt, our failures, and then gives us something new in exchange. Jesus takes all that and gives us his righteousness, his victory, his honor. Listen to Isaiah 62. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, 
You, your land shall no more be termed desolate. You shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land married, for the Lord delights in you. We're told that everybody who's in Christ is going to get a new name. White stone in Revelation is your new name written on it. I don't know what my new, new name is. You don't either. We'll find out one day. But I do know what my sort of new name is. Your new name. You're a Christian. Which means you're a little Christ. Which means he stole your old identity. And gave you a new one. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks for our new identity. We give you thanks for your love for guilty people, uh, for failures, uh, for those who just uh, feel naked and ashamed all the time. Thank you for your mercy, uh, for your grace to us. Thank you that you call us uh, to, to come to the, the good thief, uh, to, to have all of those things taken away from us, those that, things that were ours that you make yours. And instead, you make what is yours ours so that we might be called by your name. Lord, if there are any here who really have been despairing, who really wonder if it's, if it's even worth living anymore, who worry that they are failures, who feel naked, Lord, would you cover their shame? Would you unite them to your conquest? Would you show us our justification all new in Jesus? Lord, would you bless us as we receive these things from you and then give them and pass them on to others. Make us forgiving people as you've forgiven us. Lord, make us people who will lift up those who are bowed down as you have lifted us up. Make us those who will cover the, the shame and the disgrace of others, who will, who will lift them up and show them your dignity and your honor that we have through your gospel. Make us the means for your kingdom to come and for your will to be done, we pray in Jesus' name.